Genesis 36. And uh, genealogies have kind of become a bit popular recently. Uh, websites like Ancestry.com, kind of, they track a huge amount of online traffic. And a lot of people go on there and they research all sorts of little bitty details about their family history. And Ancestry.com has just got like so many um, different historical documents that you can find about your family. And I'm not here to sell you on Ancestry.com. Uh, but you see that it's actually the second most popular hobby in the country is researching your own family. It's quite amazing. Uh, you see this hunger in people to reconnect with their heritage and their family history and to kind of like feel like they've come from somewhere. Now, your own family history might be fascinating, but I'll tell you what's not fascinating. Someone else's family history is not that fascinating. Have you ever had someone try to take you through their family heritage and their list and like, oh, great uncle Percy, he was a sheep shearer. And you're like, oh, I'm already bored of it. Like, can't, can't stand it. It's not my cup of tea, really. In some ways, when we come to the genealogies in the Bible, it can feel the same. It can feel like we're hearing about someone else's family history. It doesn't really connect with our world. Many people I've found, and a few of you have even admitted this to me, that when you read the Bible, you get to these passages that have genealogies, and either you fly through it so quickly that you couldn't even recite one name back to me, or you just skip the whole chapter altogether. But we are not going to do that. We are going to go through this chapter with a fine comb. And by the end of it, you're going to know so many details about Esau's genealogy that you might actually end up surprised. I want to convince you today that this chapter is way more important than you would initially have thought. This, this chapter will help us tie together the history of the Bible. It will provide clues for historical context as you read through the Bible. It will speak powerfully also about your family and why your family is important and our own legacies. I hope today you won't just learn facts about Esau's descendants, but you will learn about God's unfolding story of redemption throughout history. So for context, what we're reading today, this whole chapter spans about 450 to 500 years. That is a long time. 500 years ago takes us roughly to the Reformation. That is a considerable amount of time. Uh, what we are seeing is at the end of chapter 36, it takes us all the way up to when Moses is writing this book, the same time that Moses is writing Genesis. Esau, the, Jacob's brother, may not have received the promise. In fact, we remember he despised his birthright and exchanged it for a bowl of soup. And yet God is faithful to fulfill his promises to people that are not descendants of Abraham and Isaac in the lineage, in, in, in uh, the promised lineage. Now, history often works like the butterfly effect. You may have heard of the butterfly effect. It's this idea that a butterfly may beat its wings in the jungles of Brazil, and then uh, it, it unleashes this chain of events as it, all this wind changes, and then it affects, and now there's a tornado in Texas because of a butterfly that beat its wings in Brazil. And we see throughout the Bible as you're reading it, you will find that Esau, merely eating a red soup in exchange for his birthright, has huge flow-on effects for everyone. And we will see that. We can even see that in the story of Jesus, right? Because the Edomites go by a different name. It's like a transliteration, Idumeans. There was a guy named Herod the Great. Do you remember that guy? He was an Idumean, an Edomite. And he was the guy that killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. 
Because of Esau, in a sense, Jesus had to flee to Egypt in order to fulfill prophecy. And when you realize this, it kind of breaks your brain a little bit. When you start to realize the interconnections and how small uh, events are not actually that small and they have huge ramifications. So I hope you never eat a soup the same way again. God is so sovereign over history, so in control, that a simple soup is used in God's plan of redemption. History has this amazing flow and effect. And if you're attentive enough, you will realize that this history heavily affects us too over 3,000 years later from when these words were first written. So we're going to read Genesis 36, except this week I'm going to do something differently. Normally I'll give you three points and I'll read the passage of Scripture and we'll go through that passage together. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this passage and make comments as I go through it. And then by the end of my sermon, we will have reached the end of this chapter. And uh, please pray for me as I read all these names. So let's go. Verse 1, chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adar, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adar bore Esau, Eliphaz, uh, bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basmath bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, if you're a massive Bible nerd, you would have noticed that the names of Esau's wives here, we see Holibamah, Adar, and uh, Basimath, are actually different to the names of his wives that we hear about in Genesis 26 and 28. The original names were Judith, Basimath, comes up again, and Mahalath. Now, it was common for women to have two names at this time, just like a lot of people today have two names, like a first name and a surname, but they would have two first names that would identify them. But it could also mean and this is the way I go with it, I reckon he had six wives. And these are the three wives that bore him children. There were only three wives to actually bear him sons. Unlike Jacob, Esau doesn't have that many children. We know Jacob has at least 13 children because he has 12 sons. And he also has his daughter, Dina, who was involved in that horrible tragedy, if you guys remember that. Uh, that's not a lot of kids. In fact, if he had six wives, that's less than one child per wife. There was something going on, but Esau wasn't able to have that much of uh, that much children. But notice this, this small, seemingly small family would actually leave a massive imprint on the land that they were going to. Let's keep reading. Verse six. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went away to a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now you're going to see that last phrase happen all the time. Esau is Edom. It's going to be constantly reminded us because Esau has two names. Edom means red and he gets the nickname after the red soup that Jacob gives to him. And so forever the people are known as like the red people. And that's kind of where Edomite comes from, the red people, the people of the red soup, I guess. It's what, what a name. Uh, and Esau, um, uh, because of his foolish decision, he now lives away from the promised land because he would not receive the promised land. He lives in Seir. It's to the southeast of the promised land. It's in modern day Jordan. And that was given because the promised land was going to be given to Jacob. 
We remember the heated conflict that Jacob got because he tricked his father Isaac to be given the blessing and then Esau wanted to kill Jacob and it all kind of just like fell apart and there was so much family conflict uh, and Jacob returns, he gives gifts to his brother Esau and then they kind of make up and it all kind of works out. They're not going to kill each other anymore. Uh, but we see that Esau marries this woman named Holibama. Very attractive name. I'm thinking of naming my future daughter Holibama. We'll see how that goes. She was a princess in Seir. So Esau managed to bag himself a princess. He's managed to marry a woman of renown within this area that he's starting to move to. And by this point, Esau is a man of great prestige and value in this country. And when we, when we see Jacob's wealth, when Esau sees that, he sees the huge gifts that he receives. He's moved up from the north to meet Jacob as Jacob's coming back in. When he sees that, he realizes they cannot both live in the promised land together. At this point, Esau hadn't made the decision to settle in Seir. He's, he's married a Seirite princess. But at this point, he decides, I have to stay in Seir because if I don't, we are going to be in trouble. And so Esau doesn't seek revenge on Jacob and decides not to dwell alongside him. It is then that Esau decides to lay his roots down in Seir and his grandchildren are born. Within a couple of generations, something fascinating happens. Esau completely takes over this land. Why? Because he is, we remember, he's a strong dude. He's a hunter. He's a forceful kind of alpha male type. And yet he's coming into Seir and his descendants, he'll pass on that trait to his descendants and his descendants will be ruthless. And they get a renown for being ruthless. Let's keep reading. We're going to get introduced to Esau's grandchildren. Verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adar, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adar, Esau's wife. So introduced to Esau's firstborn son here, Eliphaz. There's five sons he has, but there's a sixth son that's born to Timnah, a concubine. So Amalek, and you guys might recognize that name, is an illegitimate son, somewhat illegitimate son. And yet here's where the Amalekites come from. Do you guys know of, you may have heard of the Amalekites, quite an interesting bunch. This is important because you've got to recognize when Moses is writing this. As he's writing Genesis, he is writing it to a people that have fought the Amalekites. The people that were the first people ever to read the book of Genesis were a people that had just fought a brutal battle with these Amalekites. We see this battle in Exodus 17 in Rephidim. The Amalekites coming out, they see Israel's vulnerability out in the desert. And what do they think? They're going to be like a vulture. They're going to come down and they're going to wipe Israel off the map. In fact, God is so uh, outraged by this that he tells the Israelites, as you guys are going into the promised land, make a bypass trip through the Amalekite lands and destroy them for what they've done to us. Because they were brutal. Imagine reading this. You have had brothers in arms massacred by the Amalekites. And you're like, that is where they're from. They're from this, this illegitimate son of Eliphaz. They're from Esau. 
Jacob's old nemesis, right? You can see that it's starting to bake in these conflicts, these national conflicts. And we see that this is kind of a common occurrence all throughout the world. In fact, if you go to Afghanistan today, they are like a tribal society and they still have tribes that are at war with other tribes for a rape that happened a thousand years ago. I'm not even joking about that. They have these, this blood feud and Israelites and the Amalekites and the Edomites, they all have this massive blood feud. And as we keep reading, we're introduced to his second son, verse 13. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Now this list is the triumphant sons of Esau. They become chiefs. They take over the land and they become 14 chiefs, 14 grandsons. It's an impressive thing to do considering they've only been there for two generations. So we see the list reiterated again, but this time we find out who were chiefs. So pay attention as well as we keep going on. Don't let your eyes glaze over yet. Verse 15, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adar. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Samar, Shammah, and chief Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom, these are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, chiefs Jalam, and chiefs Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. What we have here is a very official list. You can see kind of how official it is, the way that it repeats itself. Uh, these are the sons of Esau. These are their chiefs. It repeats over and over again. And it's interesting because it seems like Moses has gotten a hold of some Edomite list of official kings, which isn't beyond question because when the sons of Israel, the Israelites were going into the promised land, they actually had to go through Edom to get there. So it wouldn't have been too hard for Moses to get this list. And we come to then verses 20 to 30. They're no longer talking about Esau, but they're talking about Seir. And Seir is like the OG, the guy that was already in the land, the original native people who, this guy Seir, lived roughly the same time as Abraham. And he actually ends up in that battle with Chedorlaomer and all this, but I won't throw names at you guys, are probably going to get too overloaded with this. But all these guys thought it was a good idea to let Esau immigrate into the land and intermarry with him. In two generations, this guy Seir and his descendants would be either intermarried or wiped out. It's amazing. Uh, it's just this new group of people coming in, and you think immigration is difficult now. Immigration was definitely difficult back then. We know next to nothing about the Horites. Seir was a Horite, and so complete was their destruction by the Edomites that really this is the only uh, record that these people exist that we still have to this day. Moses even took time to write about it in Deuteronomy 2.12. He says this, he says, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. This shows how quickly a people can be taken over and dispossessed 
if you don't take great care to protect your family and your people. You often see this in a small scale, right? When a Christian family will begin to intermarry with non-Christians, you very quickly find out that their Christian witness slowly begins to evaporate. It's quite, uh, it's quite sad when that begins to happen. Rather than you leading that non-Christian into the kingdom, it always, almost always seems to lead to an abandonment of the things of God. And Seir quickly found out that by intermarrying and allowing the Edomites in, they were just about to be taken over. And so let's read about the Horites, verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horites, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ibal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. Ah, yes, those hot springs. How can we forget those ones, eh? Well, you see, there's actually two Anahs on this list. And so Moses doesn't want us to get confused. There's two Anahs. So this Anah, this second Anah, he was the guy who found the hot springs that we know about. What I discovered as, as I'm uh, researching this is while Moses, around the time that he's writing Genesis, he's close to the land of the Edomites or he's in the land of the Edomites, which means that he's probably just pointing down the road to where the hot springs are when he's first uh, writing this. The, obviously, the uh, people knew where it was, which is why it got uh, mentioned. And I like to think that Moses was probably chilling out, relaxing in the hot springs while he's writing Genesis. That's definitely not the case, but uh, I like to think that that might be. But regardless, the Israelites are really thankful for this guy, Anah, because they're chilling in these hot springs at the moment. But this guy is important, not just for the hot springs, but because he has a daughter. Did you catch who his daughter was? We'll catch who his daughter was. Oholibama. That really attractive name. She marries Esau. She was the princess that led Esau to this land in the first place. It was really Anah's fault in marrying his daughter off that they ended up losing the land. Verse 25, these are the children of Anah, the guy who found the hot springs. Dishon and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. Now you must understand that although these places seem weird and obscure to us, the Israelites who were hearing them would have been familiar to them as Newcastle and Sydney is to us. In fact, imagine for a second that we developed a similar list for the Israelites of the Hunter Valley. And we just put before them, hey, this is the history of the Hunter Valley. Here's some names of the people in the Hunter Valley. Here's some names of the towns in the Hunter Valley. And what do you think they're going to think when they're reading it? Who's this Gaza bloke? You know, what's going on with these names? And they'd be looking, Curry Curry, is that really a name of a town? What is going on with these people? We'd be just as bizarre uh, to them as they are to us. Now, you might say this list does us as much good as a list of the Hunter Valley towns would do to the Israelites. That's simply not true. We are a direct result of the events we are reading about here. Our beliefs, values, and convictions come from the history of these events. These may seem obscure, but they embed us into the redemption story of God. 
When we read The Descendants of Esau, we should actually see ourselves in this lineage a lot more than you might think. Like Esau, we are not in the promised lineage. Unless you are of Jewish descent, and as far as I know, none of you guys are, but come and surprise me later. Uh, we are Gentiles, non-Israelites, descended from godless pagans. I descend from the Celts of Britain and the Normans, and those guys were doing all sorts of bizarre stuff, human sacrifices in the woods. You know, I like to think my descendants ended up putting up Stonehenge up, but that was obviously some pagan worship, the Druids, all those kind of clans. That's who I'm descended from. I'm not of a descendant of Abraham. I don't have that blood running in my veins. And yet God takes time to show how he was faithful to them as men and women who were not descendants of the promise. Esau was a descendant of Abraham, but more importantly, we're going to see an interesting character. And this character should give you hope. This character is Jobab, and I'm going to make the case that this is Job, from the book of Job. Jobab, in this next section, is a king. A king that is strikingly similar to Job. We know that Job is from Uz, which we saw in verse 28 right? Uz is the grandson of Seir. He's called the greatest of all the people of the east. Job 19.9 seems to indicate that he is a king, says he has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. We know that Job is an Edomite. One of his miserable advisors are called Eliphaz, the Temanite. Eliphaz, where have we heard that name before? Ah, that's Esau's firstborn son. Interesting. An Edomite He's either named after the firstborn son, or he is Esau's firstborn son in the book of Job. You'll never read that book again the same way. Why am I telling you this? Because Job is an Edomite. Job likely is Esau's great-grandson. One of the greatest, most righteous men to have ever lived came from Esau. Fascinating. It shows us that no matter your background, no matter your heritage or your ancestry or your religious background even, God still calls people from all walks of life and all lineages and all people groups to himself. No man or woman is doomed simply because they're an Edomite. They're not doomed simply because they're descended from Esau. God is a specialist in calling people from darkness. And we see Job was a righteous man. He suffered a terrible trial and under his influence, the land of Edom would have flourished and belief of God in God would have been widespread. And remember this, while Israel is in the land of Goshen in slavery, Job was living a few hundred kilometers away in Edom. The Edomites started off with belief in God. And so we're going to read about Jobab. And as we get down, we're going to see, check out if you can see a name that starts with B, and if it kind of indicates to you what happens to the, the Edomite kings. Let's have a listen. Verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinabab. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Mazrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. 
Shaul died and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pa'u. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. Oh, one of the last ones to get me, eh? Here we have a list of eight dynasties, spanning a history of roughly 400 years, bringing us to King Hadar, who ruled while Moses was writing the book of Genesis. These kings are all from different family lines. Usually when a king dies, who takes over? The firstborn son. When we have an entire list of eight kings and no firstborn son takes the rule, what does that indicate? A quite fractured society, doesn't it? There was no ability to pass on uh, the family lineage. They all come from different lines. It means that the nation was plagued with civil wars again and again and again and again as new kings from different cities vied for the throne of Edom. But these kings fulfill a few promises, a key promise that we've already seen. In Abraham, Genesis 17, 6, God promises, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Well, King Bela, the son of Beor, was the first king to fulfill this because this king was a descendant of Abraham. But we've seen some kings with terrible names. There was a guy named Baal Hanan. You may know what Baal is, Baal. We've also got this guy named Hadad. That was the Edomite god of thunder. We also know him by different names like Zeus, Jupiter, Thor, whatever name you want to give to him. This is the god of storms, the god of thunder, the god of lightning. So we have a king named after a god already, Hadad. What that shows us is that from Jobab, if this is indeed Job, descended down, the Edomites have abandoned their beliefs for pagan idolatry. The descendants of Esau who were raised in the worship of God have now abandoned God. We're introduced to Baal Hanan, named after the Canaanite god, Baal. Why does this happen? How can a people group so quickly abandon God, especially when you had a guy like Job living with you? If you leave a garden untended, the natural state is weeds. So also if you leave the human heart untended, idols will pop up like daisies. The natural state of every people group and every generation is idolatry. Every new generation that comes has to rediscover God again. They have to tend to their own garden. It's only by teaching and believing the word of God that we can stave off our own sin and idolatry and continue in righteousness. The natural state of human beings is not worship of the one true God, but idolatry. It took two generations from Job for Edom to fall apart into pagan worship. It's where Hadad shows up, the God of thunder. He's named after him. It takes a couple of generations for the worship of God to be abandoned in our country as well. It seems to be that two generations, the magic number. Moses finishes our section here by introducing us to the 11 clans of Edom. You might notice some of the names. These are the last couple of verses in this chapter. Verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibamah, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. 
Moses speeds through the descendants of Esau. Centuries of history summarized with only a short chapter. Here we get the 11 tribes of Esau. What do we do with all this? Well, it's somewhat important information, but there is a reason why Moses speeds through it. There is a reason why in one chapter, Esau is summarized and then put away. We don't hear about him again. There's a reason why he does that. We see in chapter 37, it begins with, uh, these are the generations of Jacob, right? We hear the start of verse th- uh, chapter 36, these are the generations of Esau. Now notice when you get from verse uh, chapter 37, it's the rest of the book of Genesis that is dedicated to the generations of Jacob. Because this is the important part. Esau, he's a little bit important, but Jacob is the most important because he is the one through whom the promise comes. God gives his utmost attention to his people, those who are in his plan. And while it's true that God knows each and every person that has ever lived, he knows every little bit of hair that is on their head, his word shows us that he has a different concentration and focus on his people. Not just Israel, but the people that follow him. We must learn from the Edomites. Just as every other people group in history, the natural state is weeds. The natural state is abandoning God. We must be firm in our commitment to Jesus and his gospel because he is the only one who provides an eternal legacy. Moses speeds through Esau. What a shame if God sped through us and we got no page in the redemption history. God is faithful to Abraham. He's faithful to his descendants, even ungodly men like Esau. How much more would God be faithful and bless those that trust in his son, Jesus? How much more secure will our family line be in Jesus? How much stronger our churches and our communities when we refuse to be just like the nations around us? When we're distinct and faithful to our great God. There is a lot to learn from Esau's lineage. I'm just going to quote one Edomite, Job, after his whole life comes crashing down. Chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job recognized that his only hope comes in God that the only thing that matters is in God and that God is the only blessed thing because everything else will eventually come to ruin if it is not within God's plan and purposes. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is where we have to be with the recognition that everything is lost apart from knowing Christ. His worth is far surpassing. So trust in him, trust in his name. And by God's grace, we will not be sped over just a little footnote of history, but we will be a part of the people of God who love his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to see how interconnected your word is. 
and passages of scripture that are harder to understand and harder to recognize and the names that seem to just fall straight out of our heads as soon as we read them. Father, we know that those names are there for a reason, that you did not just choose random people for a random list that was unimportant, but that these people, regardless of their life, Lord, whether they were righteous or unrighteous, godly or ungodly, Lord, you used them for your purpose. Even this day, Lord, you used the godly and ungodly for your purposes to bring yourself glory. We pray, Lord, that you would show grace to us, that we would have a wonderful part to play in this great story of redemption that is unfolding in this world even today, that we would not fall to the side and move away from the promised land and live in some foreign place like Seir, but we would stay where the promise is, stay where you have called us to, and to continue in faith in your son Jesus, who will take us to our true home and our true family. And so, Father, I pray for this world. I pray for our lives. I pray for our walk with you. Lord, would we worship and know your son above all else who died for us and rose again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.